It's on, apparently. Am I on? Yeah, I am on. So they say. I'm switched on. You can... The last in the preaching series that we've been going through, where we've been looking at chapters in the book by Mike Betts, uh, entitled Relational Mission, A Way of Life. I hope all, if, most of you, if not all, have got a copy of this or borrowed the library copies that there are and you've read it. Okay. Um, relational Mission is our section of the wider church family called New Frontiers. All right? Some years ago, New Frontiers diversified into what are called spheres, and we are in a sphere that's led uh, by Mike, uh, Mike Betts, and it's called Relational Mission. So we've been looking uh, through the chapters of that, and we come to the last one today. Um, God calls people to serve him from various church settings and various expressions of church, from large denominations with international branches to families of churches like ours, down to small um, local independent missions. All churches that are faithful to God's revelation in the scriptures, that is in the Bible, would hold similar doctrines and values. Doctrines are our theology, what we believe about God and how he relates to his world. That's what the doctrines cover. And um, the values are usually the way we go about doing things. The things that we think are most important for us as we live out our Christian life as individuals or as churches. How we relate to each other and engage with the world around us. They will be things like love and grace and family and discipleship and hospitality and church planting and so on. You get the idea. They're values as opposed to church doctrine. If you looked at the list of values from different churches and compared them, you would find many similarities. Uh, but it is those things that are at the top or near the top of the list that give an indication of the kind of church or movement that you're dealing with. You could say that they shape the character of the church. For example, some may have order and structure at the top of the list. I'm not sure we do, but some have order and structure at the top of the list, whereas others, more like us, might have freedom and flexibility at the top. Uh, it's not that those who emphasise freedom and flexibility don't appreciate some order and structure, but it's way down the list. All right? uh, some may look to their denomination to supply future leaders, whereas others want to raise them from among their own number. In his book, Micah set out what he feels are the things that God has given him to emphasise at this time. In other words, the things that are at the top of his list of values for relational mission that help to shape us as a family of churches. Now, cultures may vary from church to church, even in relational mission. Right? For example, one church may be in a university town with a high proportion of students, whereas another may be like ours with a fairly high age uh, range and, uh, and no students. The values are the same, but outwardly the church may look different. But like a stick of rock, no matter where you cut it, 
the message and the values should be the same. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at each chapter which highlights uh, the, the values. These are not the only values that we hold, but these are the ones that we're being encouraged to pursue uh, together at this time. I'll just remind you of what we've been looking at. A real family, raising sons and daughters, everyone a witness, the prayers of many, a church for a broken world, and that's where we had Dave come and speak to us. And uh, starting new families, that was the last one we had a couple of weeks ago when Craig came and spoke to us on that subject, starting new families. The last chapter in the book that we're looking at today has a rather a strange title. You will know the, what we're heading for because it's in your front of your bulletin, bulletin. And the title is, We Have a Compass But No Map. This is only a figure of speech. I can't find the words compass and map in the Bible. Not as nouns, anyway. But as we explore it, I hope it will help us understand better the nature of the journey that we're on together. We've been joined to God in his mission to the world. And it's our doctrines and values that help us grow together and engage uh, with our community and beyond. So we're on a journey. Let's explore the idea of a compass all right, and see that we have no map. Or we shouldn't have a permanent map, perhaps it's better to say. The danger is if we have a map or start constructing one by saying, this is the route that we will always take. This is the route that we'll always take to our destination. This is the way we will always do things. Then our church will become stuck in the past and we will find it harder to hear the voice of God. A problem with a map is it very quickly gets out of date. New roads, new layouts, new housing estates are introduced. I've heard people say, I couldn't use my sat-nav because it's not been updated according to the new roads and things that have been introduced. A compass, on the other hand, is never out of date. You understand that? A compass is never out of date. A compass sets the direction, but not the path. It just points in, a, in the same direction all the time. Compass always points to north. No matter where you are or what you're doing, it points to north. Of course, you can use a compass to set a different uh, course, but for the sake of this illustration, north is our course. And even if you're setting a different course, the compass still only points to north. We'll start by looking at an Old Testament character, Abraham, and I want you to think what might be his compass. Um, it's from Genesis 12.1. Don't look it up because it's, it's only a couple of verses. Right? Genesis 12.1. At first, um, his, his compass may look a bit very much different from ours, but in essence, it the same, it's the same. So Genesis 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, this is a great journey that God's sending him on. And you might have thought that God would say, and as you go, just um, pick up the map that's pinned to the, the palm tree on the left-hand side as you go. All right, just so you know where you're going. But no, nothing. 
And in fact, um, the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, commenting on the call of Abraham, says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He just went because God had called him. So, what do you think um, is his compass? He had no map. What was his compass, do you think? Well, it can only be the call of God on his life. His compass did not change in all the experiences he had on the way. And there's quite a long section in Genesis that tells you about Abraham's fortunes and so on. The compass stayed the same even when he made mistakes, and he made some. So what is our compass? Well, I believe in the same way that it did with Abraham, it starts with a call or a command or a commission, as we call it, the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28 and verses 19 and 20. For the first disciples, it was clearly a command to go and not to stay in Jerusalem and keep the good news of the gospel to themselves, but to be outward-looking and see themselves and successive generations as taking the gospel everywhere. Jesus said, go and make disciples and teach them who would then go and make disciples and teach them, who would then go and make disciples and teach them. It was a, a, a never-ending process as the gospel um, spread out, as the gospel of salvation everywhere. They did not need a map, for Jesus would go with them so that his presence and his teaching would be their compass. With these two things, his presence and his teaching, there is nowhere on earth where the gospel would not be relevant. No culture, no ethnic group, no age would be beyond the reach of the love of God in the gospel. This is why the church may outwardly look different as you travel from culture to culture, such as how the churches worship, the kind of music that they use, how the church is organised, how it appoints leaders, how it engages with the community. As an example, in China, since the Cultural Revolution, there has been a massive Christian revival. Some of us have had the privilege of, of, of touching that, going to China and, and getting involved in that in some ways. And um, in the early days, and even today, they had no special buildings. In this country, Christianity is still, I think, very much associated with special buildings. They're rather stylized. You look at a city or a town or a village and there's a spire sticking up and you know that's a church building. Um, in the cities in China, there are some church buildings um, under government control, but in the rural areas where most of the revival has taken place, churches often meet in secret in homes or very early in the morning in the open air. Many believers lack a personal Bible, relying on hand-copied portions and learning large sections by heart. Although this is very different from what we experience, because their roadmap, we might call it, is different, but the compass still works for them, the teachings of Jesus and his presence with them. 
Problems can arise when we make less of the compass, that, uh, that is, our unchanging doctrines and values, and consider the culture to be equally unchanging. In other words, we create a map for successive generations so that when God wants to blow a wind of change through his church, the cry goes up, but we've always done it this way. We've, I'm sorry, but we've always done it this way. Tradition can override the word of God and his living presence. Jesus had something strong to say to the religious leaders of his day that had made the, their traditions more important than the word of God. He called them hypocrites. He said that you have made, uh, by your traditions, you've made the word of God of no effect. In other words, you've cancelled out the word of God with your traditions. So just by way of illustration, let's um, take traditional buildings for a moment. When I was growing up, traditional church buildings were synonymous with Christianity. You always had a special building. Uh, and for many people, they were an essential part of their experience of God. But in fact, they are cultural, not foundational. Albeit a culture that goes back hundreds of years. It may surprise you to know that the New Testament has nothing to say about buildings, sacred or otherwise. And, uh, and, and some of the symbolism that you find in them, the way the, the building is laid out, the furniture and so on, that people love is probably more Old Testament than it is New Testament. The word church, as I'm sure you know in the New Testament, refers to the people, not the building. God does not dwell in buildings, but in the midst of his people. We, that's uh, followers of Jesus, are described as uh, a building of living stones in which God dwells by his spirit. Of course, many church congregations have inherited traditional buildings and those that have wanted uh, them to be more suitable for congregational participation in worship and available for community outreach, in other words, more multi-purpose, have tried to adapt them to the needs of today's church and soft, sometimes at considerable expense. And many of them have done a great job in doing that and made those ancient buildings um, useful um, in this generation. So I'm not trying to have a particular go at church buildings, but just to illustrate they're part of the map, not the compass. Church buildings are part of the map, not the compass. Today's churches meet in all sorts of buildings, such as warehouses, schools, restaurants, nightclubs, also taking over commercial buildings and making them fit for purpose. And sadly, in some parts of the world where Christians have been persecuted, church buildings have been destroyed. They've been burnt, they've been ransacked and so on. And whilst this has brought much distress to the believers there and the facility has been lost, the church lives on, meeting where it can, maybe in homes, and still following their compass. They're still on course. They're not rely totally reliant. Um, if they have a compass, if they know their doctrines and values, they can still be on course. When we moved here from the Beacon Centre in 2013, it's that long ago. Amazing, isn't it? Where's the time gone? I don't know. And I know it was a challenge for some of you, 
But as well as finding more space for a growing church, and we've got some space this morning, <laughs> people missing, okay, um, it may have helped to loosen the ties uh, to a particular building and hopefully made it easier for us to hear God when he moves us on. All right? we don't, we've lost some of those ties maybe. Um, what will the Beacon Church be like in years to come as people and circumstances change? Who knows where we will be meeting? Who knows what pressures we will, we will be experiencing from society then? And we will have to be adapting and make sure that we're still able to, to represent our, our doctrines and values even in a changing society. Well, I don't know. But I trust that if you were to dig below the surface, you would find the same doctrines and the same values that characterize us today. So the compass represents doctrines and values. Let's just take a brief look at these. Firstly, doctrines and why it's part of the compass. Doctrine, this is our foundational teaching and belief based on the Bible about God and the world that he has made, including human beings. Uh, it's the unchanging bedrock of truth against which all other beliefs, ideas and philosophies are judged. It's a plumb line. You understand a plumb line? You put it up against the structure to see whether it's upright, whether it's perpendicular. All right? And the Bible has often used that as a standard. It's our plumb line. However, we live in an age where people are increasingly rejecting the concept of absolute truth, particularly that which is given to mankind by a loving God, and they're embracing the concept of relative truth. So that's expressed in the phrase, what is true for you may not be true for me. Uh, I have a right to say what is true, what is right and wrong. Never before has the biblical truth been more challenged by a society that considers itself enlightened. That's what our society believes, isn't it? We are now, we've come of age. We are enlightened and advanced and in consequence of past laws which run, run counter to God's revealed plan for mankind. In recent years, we have seen the institution of marriage redefined. That's what they call it. They've redefined marriage. I still, I still can hardly believe that this has happened. I mean, ever since um, uh, human beings have recorded their history, we know that marriage meant a man and a woman in a covenant relationship. That's how it's always been. And yet, this society, this generation says, no, we're going to redefine it. And human Sexuality is confused. The debate, one of the debates at the moment is, should transsexuals, what, which public toilet should they use, male or female? It's confused. Sexuality is confused. And sadly, some Christians are giving in to the pressure. The world is saying, you need to come up to date. You know, you need to revise things so you're up to date with society. Uh, they may say that they've not abandoned the Bible, but in some cases they've certainly reinterpreted it, in, reinterpreted it to fall into line with the world's thinking. 
How is it that we've come to this? How is it we've come to this? Well, I believe that it is the almost wholesale acceptance that the theory of evolution, not the Bible, tells us where we come from. It claims that we are the result of blind chance and natural selection over millions of years. If there is no God who has created mankind and who therefore has a right to say what's right and wrong, then anything goes. Who is to say what's right? So-called truth will be at the mercy of expediency or popular opinion. Without an understanding of right and wrong, that's been given to us by a loving creator. Uh, uh, therefore, you know, uh, who decides? So now society considers it has a right to decide about human sexuality and what constitutes marriage. In the first three chapters of Genesis, God tells us why and how he made us and how we should relate male and female and the purpose of marriage. Even some Christians think that the creation-evolution debate is a side issue and has no bearing on their understanding and acceptance of the gospel. They even find it slightly embarrassing when non-Christians raise the issue because they feel they're on shaky ground. But let me say that the biblical doctrine of creation, if abandoned, seriously undermines the doctrine of salvation. And particularly that, as expounded by Paul in his wonderful letter to the Romans, which is like a symphony to God's grace in Christ and how fallen man is lifted to the heights of heaven. The whole revelation of God in the Bible from the first creation to the new creation we read about in the book of Revelation makes no sense if evolution is substituted for the origin of mankind. Evolution requires that death and decay are there from the beginning of the simplest life form so that the survival of the fittest and natural selection can take place. The Bible, on the other hand, shows us that when God created the heavens and the earth, all living creatures, and finally man, they were created perfect. There was no death, but when man disobeyed God, death came and not only spread to all mankind, but also affected the whole creation. God, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is that through his death and resurrection, God will reverse the effects of the fall in man and one day, through Christ, restore the whole corrupted universe. Paul in Romans says this, For as by the one, man disobedience, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. He's there, of course, referring to Adam, Adam the first man who sinned. So, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, because death and judgment passed to all. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In other words, the gospel, Jesus, in his obedience to go to the cross and to take the punishment for our sin, to lay down his life for us, to, to be that perfect sacrifice. Um, that's what he's talking about. Now then, if the per first part of that sentence uh, is false, 
In other words, it wasn't by one man's disobedience that the many were made sinners because we all evolved from a single cell and death and destruction have been there from the beginning. Then why should we, rem why should we take any notice of the second half of that sentence? That, that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now this is the heart of the gospel, that fallen man, through Christ's death and resurrection, can be raised to new life, uh, and not just new life, but eternal life. This doctrine, along with the historic biblical doctrines of the church, if denied or watered down, will throw us off course. Our compass will not point north. Right? But like a compass with a magnet held against it, it will be unreliable and will compromise our journey. So doctrines are vitally important as part of our compass that set our course, that give us certainty and a bedrock of truth. So secondly, values. Someone has said, we do what we value and we value what we do. Right? Okay, we, we do what we value and we value what we do. That's fairly true, isn't it, statement? Now we could spend a lot of time looking at values that are dear to us, such as love and grace, um, acceptance of one another, integrity, fellowship, body ministry, and so on. But I want to finish with one that um, may not be quite so familiar to us, but one which we believe as elders will play an increasingly significant part in our journey with God. And that is prophecy. The gift of prophecy to the church. Um, as far as we're concerned, it's what the New Testament has to say about this, but just to put it in context, let me just review Old Testament prophets. Prophets feature strongly in the Old Testament. A good number of the books are named after them, aren't they? They were people who spoke to their times to confront, confront the people of God with their sins and God's judgments against them, but also to communicate God's love and mercy, calling the people to repent and to turn back to God. And interwoven in their messages to the people, we also have God's plans revealed for the future, and in particular, his promise of a Messiah, a deliverer, a saviour, which was so wonderfully fulfilled by Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophets were those with a special calling on their lives and an anointing by the Spirit of God. They were people that God had singled out to be his mouthpiece to their generation. There are many in the Old Testament books that carry their names, aren't there? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, you name them, you know, lots of them, Malachi, um, and so on. Um, in the New Testament, there is a change of emphasis because all God's people, all believers in Jesus, have an anointing of the Holy Spirit with the potential to prophesy. So in the Old Testament, particular people were anointed with the Holy Spirit. But now believers in Jesus, all are anointed with the Holy Spirit and have the potential to prophesy. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 tells us what can happen when the church meets together? And he encourages his readers to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that they may prophesy. So he's talking about when the church is gathered, 
certainly for worship, but maybe on other occasions. Maybe there's a business meeting. There's no reason why gifts of the Spirit should not be exercised in that meeting. Now this is a different level of prophecy from that spoken by the Old Testament prophets. Here it's about building up the church. What he says is, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who prophesies builds up the church. So that is the function. So if, if somebody prophesies in our meeting here, that's what we would expect. We would expect that kind of encouraging word and building up. However, there is also a ministry of the prophet that's included in the list that Paul gives in Ephesians chapter 4 of those given by the risen Christ. He said, when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men and that some should be apostles, some are prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry to build up the church. Um, these are often travelling ministries but not necessarily. But often they're, they're uh, ministries that travel between congregations and so on. And through uh, our contacts in New Frontiers then we have access to these ministries and often we've had people come and speak to us from time to time and we've had the benefit of their, their ministries. The prophet can bring insights from God for congregations, sometimes helping to unlock situations that get, get stuck. When they bring a message from God, it never takes the place of Scripture. That's absolutely paramount. It is complementary to Scripture. It never takes the place of Scripture. And it has to be weighed by the church. What does that mean? What does weighing mean? All right. That is to say there has to be firstly an agreement in the church that yes, this is a word from God and secondly, um, the way in which that is to be worked out. If it's to encourage us to do something then there's an agreement as to how we work that out. Although I've said that there is a recognised ministry of the prophet um, any believer may have a word from God but again it must be weighed. If people have a word from God that is perhaps directional about towards the church, then that must be weighed by the church. We are here in this school principally because we had two independent prophetic words. If you remember back there. Um, in essence, that we needed a bigger place. And if you remember, it was Graham Hall who brought the first of those, he was speaking in, while we were in the Beacon Centre and he saw a plant in a pot on the windowsill and he said, just as if you want that plant to grow and flourish, it needs a bigger flower pot, then you need a bigger place. You need a bigger place. And, and there was then another prophet, similar prophecy to us. And even though in some measure we might have been reluctant to leave the convenience of our own building, and let's face it, it was convenient. It's not always convenient to meet here, is it? You know, lugging all the gear here and whatever. However, we trusted that God had spoken and we up sticks and moved. So we're here. So as we look to the future, we want to be those who are not only shaped and matured by God's abiding word, that's the Bible, but also open 
to prophetic words that will unlock situations and open doors into the fullness of all that God has for us. Being open to the prophetic would, I think, be one of our developing values, right? part of our compass. Um, I'll close by reading um, Mike's closing paragraphs in his book. Okay? Let him have the, far, the last word. The danger with the journey ahead is if you just take a map and say, well, let's do what we've always done, the way we've always done it, then actually you can miss something that God wants to say. I think we've kind of made that point this morning, haven't we? It's not that we abandon what God has taught us, the things that have brought us to where we are today. We have to find different ways to fight different battles using the same values, the same plumb line, the same things we know to be true. When the Israelites used to travel, they would come to a point where they wanted to celebrate what God had done. So they built a memorial of stones. This was so that in the future, if their children said, what do these stones mean? They will be able to recount in detail the wonderful victories and things that God had done in the past. That is what we want to do. We want to celebrate all that God has done in the past. But folks, let's, there's a new journey before us. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is always changing. There's new terrain ahead. There are new things we have to advance into the world with. Old truths with new ways of expressing them. Keeping the values, keeping the things we know to be biblical and true. But there's so much out there that's broken and we need to find creative ways, biblical ways of bringing light into the darkness. We have a compass but no map. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your people of old found direction, not from a map, but from your commands and your abiding presence. Lord, thank you that Christianity has spread throughout the world, touching every people, every type of culture, every ethnic group, Lord, because people were true to their doctrines and their values. Their compass was true. And so, Lord, as we um, continue to look to you for the days ahead, Lord, I ask you to help us to differentiate between what's our compass and what might be a temporary map to see us through the, days, the immediate days ahead. So, Lord, will you help us? Will you continue to teach us through your word? And, Lord, just as the writer to the Hebrews said, let us run with perseverance the race before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let our compass, Lord, be pointing to him, always pointing to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's close by singing um, a song, Be Thou My Vision. <laughs>